0: Welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about
1: sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm
0: Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. And today's question is... What are you doing for pride? Why do we have
1: to do anything for pride? cradle to grave what was the other way uh, womb to tomb womb to tomb. worm yeah. to worm. so
0: fun fact that's actually from west side story
1: really mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's a lyric from west side story
1: oh that's awesome now i like that even more hey
0: happy pride happy pride ronnie can we talk about how amazing it was to talk to susan striker last episode
1: yeah last two episodes right i mean yeah I think we could just make this podcast, Conversations with Susan.
0: <laughs> I think so too. It's kind of like when nerds have a fangirl moment, it's like I was just like nerding out and fangirling so much about this, uh, about an academic historian. I think that's a beautiful thing.
1: I do too. She's really extraordinary. Yeah, I loved getting to know her through, you know, her stories. So um,
0: So, hey, what are you doing for Pride? Uh, what am I doing for Pride? Well, um, you know I'm old and tired now, so I don't do a ton for Pride anymore. But I do some fun things, and also um, I can I'm happy to share with you a story of one of my fondest memories of Pride from years past. So currently, what I do is, you know, besides being like a very out and proud physician, I also do a ton of LGBTQIA2S healthcare. And I have to tell you, Rebecca, doing this kind of medicine during Pride Month is the best. It is so fun and so joyful and There's just like nothing better than wishing people, hey, happy Pride at the end of a visit. They all go, go, yeah, yeah, happy Pride to you. And it is just like such this beautiful moment in the exam room. That is something that I'm doing for Pride. I have a very prideful and joyful practice during the month of June. And then let me share with you a story about one of my favorite Pride experiences when I was less old and less tired. So one of my favorite experiences for Pride is I had the opportunity to be in the Dikes on bikes portion of the Pride March in San Francisco. And I don't know if you've ever been in San Francisco or part of that lineup or part of Pride, but the March starts right downtown, like in the middle of the financial district where these huge skyscrapers and they're all made of like metal and glass and there's this huge road that is just packed from curb to curb with all these people on their motorcycles and everybody's like walking around and enjoying each other and like celebrating pride and looking at each other's bikes and looking at each other's outfits. And then word starts going around that it's almost time to start. And so everybody gets on their bikes and the march starts and everyone starts revving their bikes. And it's just like, and the sound is just echoing and booming off of all these buildings And the joy and excitement and pride and enthusiasm is just glorious. It is hands down one of my favorite pride memories. I love it. What are you doing for pride, Rebecca? Um,
1: I, of course, got a couple great t-shirts because it wouldn't be pride without some (laughs) new swag, including one from the American Historical Association, which uses this saying, everything has a history. And in this particular T-shirt, that saying is done in all the rainbow colors. So I love it. Um, But I'm also protesting, which is very much part of what Pride is all about. You know, the Pride March is to commemorate an uprising against um, anti-gay oppression. So there is this horrendous, horrific, terrible, awful organization uh, called Moms for Liberty. And they are anti-trans anti-gay anti anti, i don't know history because they're one of these groups that wants to ban books about rosa parks because they make white kids feel bad uh, so they say which is bogus and terrible and stupid and they are coming to philadelphia so i am joining a protest being organized by act up philadelphia act up is of course an organization that began in New York City in the 1980s to demand that pharmaceutical companies and governments do Mm -hmm. more, do a lot more to uh, address the needs of people with AIDS. ACT UP Philly has a wonderful history of really radical Mm -hmm. intersectional activism, and um, there is going to be a dance protest. This is, to me, what Pride is about. And... It's really exciting for me because I know at least one of my two kids is going to be there with me and is super excited to make their own sign. And so we are going and dancing our protest against the Museum of the American Revolution, which has rented space to this group. And so actually professional historians across the United States have spoken out against the fact that this museum is hosting this horrible pro-censorship anti-history, anti-gay organization. So, that is what I'm doing for pride.
0: Yeah. So, before we started recording, we were kind of talking about why are we talking about pride at all? Like why are we doing an episode about pride? And it's not just that it is June, but we both feel like it's a relevant topic um for a modern-day podcast about LGBTQ health and history and I think, if you don't mind, I would love for you to start us off with the historical perspective on on pride.
1: So when I think about the 20th century, which was when the Stonewall uprising was and when the first pride parades were held, I think I see three big themes in uh, queer activism, LGBTQ activism. It was opposition to police harassment, advocacy for employment non-discrimination laws and and their enforcement and protesting truly cruel medical practices healthcare policies and a lot of the activism whether it was sort of reformist let's get new laws passed or if it was liberationist like let's abolish these whole systems that or let's you know abandon this broken society and create a new one Those three issues are really present throughout the 20th century and then into the 21st. So I was thinking about Pride and thinking about our podcast and was going back and doing some reading and was just so struck by how many of the central figures in gay liberation of the late 60s and 70s of lesbian feminism and, and liberation of the time, of trans what wasn't called yet the transgender movement, but what became that movement, how important speaking for themselves in a healthcare setting was to so many of the people at the center of that cause. And Mm -hmm. how many of the people who were out there protesting, um, it wasn't just about the police raiding the Stonewall Inn in late June of 1969. That was an episode that for a whole variety of reasons was like the last straw and people just fought back as they hadn't in a long time in that way. But leading up to that, so many of these folks had been either forced or consented to go see a psychiatrist who did something like uh, electroshock aversion therapy. Oh,
0: Jesus. Or
1: had been as adolescents given doses of testosterone, say to boys who were found having sex with other boys or young men, from this idea that more testosterone would make them heterosexual or something. Um, These were trans people who knew that there were medical, surgical options available and were struggling Mm -hmm. to get physicians to listen to them about the healthcare that they needed. They were women who had struggled to get abortion care when they needed it, or to get compassionate care following sexual assault, or to get, you know, non-discriminatory access to all kinds of reproductive health care. And so Mm -hmm. it was really front and center. And in fact, a lot of the LGBTQ health clinics that are sort of the original famous ones, they were established in the 70s before the HIV AIDS crisis really began. There was already in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and Boston some of these clinics because LGBTQ people knew that if they walked into your average run of the mill neighborhood clinic or practice, they were unlikely to get the compassionate care, the full spectrum care that they needed. Um, so the LGBTQ healthcare movement was not a response to HIV AIDS. It predated it and, mm-hmm. in fact, was important to helping people respond more quickly and more effectively when HIV AIDS came along. Um, so anyway, so that's sort of like how I've been thinking about it. In addition to thinking about like what motivated people to protest, the way that people in the United States thought about homosexuality, you know, in the sixties, in the years leading up to the riot at the Stonewall in, in Greenwich village in New York city, that sort of is understood as the spark of gay liberation. The psychiatric model of homosexuality was extremely prevalent. Oh, good. And so, you know, there were different ways of thinking about what homosexuality was. Was it a mental illness? Was it criminal behavior? And also, was it, was it sinful? Was it a security threat to the U.S. Uh, government during the Cold War?
0: Why would it be a security threat?
1: <laughs> because don't you know, Ronnie, that homosexuals are more susceptible to blackmail? Ah, so therefore, Hmm. it was not thought that gay men and lesbians were more likely to be communists, which would be a sort of loyalty risk. It was thought that they were security risks because. They were more susceptible to blackmail because, you know, they're more wishy washy, they're not as psychologically stable and sort of mature. So therefore, they're, you know going to double cross the United States or something.
0: Oh, interesting. Boy, that's not where my mind went at all. I thought that you were going to say either they were more likely to be blackmailed because being queer could be used as ammunition for blackmail, right? Or that because, you know, what immediately what my mind went to is like these caricatures of gay men especially as being kind of weak and effeminate and not able to withstand torture if they if they ever got into a situation where they were being pressed for national security secrets
1: those were absolutely part of it too and i sort of see this the second thing you said as part of what i was saying too. this idea that Mm -hmm. gay men were just like not mature they were not able to sort of stand up for principles under pressure um but yeah that I mean it was sort of the irony that you're persecuting people on the basis of their sexuality and then saying oh but now look how susceptible they are to blackmail on the basis of their sexuality right. at any rate um so you know you have the whole way people thought about what it meant to be gay or lesbian was very much shaped by the medical health care apparatus at the time and so so much of what people were fighting for was a form of healthcare that put them and their experiences at the center where their voices were honored. And mm-hmm. bear in mind, this is also when the Boston Women's Health Collective is writing Our Body Ourselves, which was about putting cis women at the center of their healthcare conversations and writing about cis women's health from the standpoint of cis women. So this idea of, you know, the Black women's health movement, a Latina health movement, Asian American women's health movements. These all grow out of these protests in the 70s and into the 80s about being so frustrated when really, really significant things are going on with their health and having mm-hmm. the people who are caring for them not honoring who they are and not respecting that. So healthcare has been part of <laughs> LGBTQ activism and protest and central to what Pride was all about from the very beginning. It wasn't just like one night the police show up, people get pissed and they riot. It was like so many things leading up to that night. Police harassment, medical abuse, employment discrimination kind of collide and you get Stonewall. And then a year later you have activists who plan what they initially call the Christopher Street Liberation Day uh, march. Because Stonewall Inn was on Christopher Street in the West Village, is still on Christopher Street in the West Village, um, which then becomes what we know as the Pride Parade.
0: You know, when you're describing the origins of Pride, it sounds to me like it is the perfect example of the personal being political and how intense it was, right? And I think that many of us who have been going to Pride in the more recent decades, it feels lighter than that, right? And it feels like it's a fun thing to do. And there has been a lot of corporatization of Pride, you know, like you can go to Pride and you'll see, you know, Bud Light and, you know, whatever big corporations, Oreos or whatever, that are contributing money and advertisements to Pride.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: it just seems like almost a completely different animal.
1: I think that's fair. I mean, so I was just reading this book yesterday, the day before, about the sort of, we have a lot of critiques of what we sometimes called like the neoliberal term in LGBTQ activism. So one thing that's fascinating is that people who are like working toward LGBTQ equality have been fighting about what should happen at the pride parade since there's been a pride parade. And I was, love that. There was never a golden era of like, all the lesbians and all the gay men and all the transgender people being like, yes, we all agree. This is, this is our movement. Here's our gay agenda. Here's our gay agenda. Here's (laughs) our rainbow. We are united. I mean, and actually at the 1973 Christopher Street Remembrance Day, there were a number of activists, I think uh, who didn't want Sylvia Rivera, a total, badass trans rights pioneer speak because they didn't think that trans women belonged on the stage at pride Uh, it wasn't (laughs) called pride yet but effectively the same thing and you know there were screaming fights over whether to let her get up and get the microphone and listeners will link in our show notes to what happened when she did get the microphone Mm -hmm. and she really talked about how here she was out there, so visibly vulnerable to hate and discrimination, fighting for all of them, and they weren't going to let her speak. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the Dyke March, uh, which starts as like a "What's up with all this like fancy, <laughs> fancy parade floats?" Like, we're gonna get on our bikes. We are not getting a permit
0: because. Now, when don't. you say bikes, let's be clear: we're not talking about bicycles. Not lady. a Schwinn. No, 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 no. Uh, We are talking about badass dykes on big ass motorcycles. Yes,
1: and 20,000 of whom went the sort of length of like from like Greenwich Village up to Central Park, I believe, uh, at the first dyke march. Yeah, and they still do it. They refuse to call it a parade. They're like, we are protesting and (laughs) we're going to do it as loudly and with as much sort of powerful energy as we possibly can. And that's now usually the day before the sort of formal pride parade happens the next day. So yeah, no, there's <laughs> no like golden era of like, you know, everybody just sort of dancing there. I'm I'm dancing now, but listeners can't see that. Everyone <laughs> in their color yeah. of the rainbow doing their right. pride dance and, you know, everyone else applauding for them. That never happened.
0: Yeah, I think it's hard to find harmony when you don't ultimately have the same rubric, right? Like, are we trying to be accepted and respected within the current system? Or are we trying to to just like blow up the system and build something new? Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: And I think healthcare is such a fascinating place to take up that question because everyone has a body and everybody has a body that ends up needing care of some kind. Like that's sort of non-negotiable. <laughs> but the people who are in the sort of healthcare rights movement of the 1970s, whether it's, you know, Cis women and the Boston Women's Health Collective, or it's black women setting up clinics, or the abortion access movement setting up clinics, or gay liberationists opening up, you know, these healthcare centers. They weren't trying to invent medicine, right? They weren't like, right. let's abolish medical schools. But they also wanted to (laughs) radically transform what the experience was when a patient went into the office. Yeah. Like combine that, like, yes, let's keep the systems that train and accredit physicians, but let's completely, you know, reimagine what happens after that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think those conversations are still happening today, maybe not surprisingly. We, for example, when we're talking about queer health or, you know, I have a colleague who specializes in disability medicine. There's always this tension, right, between should our goal be to have everybody be able to provide the highest quality of care to this like, you know, air quotes niche population, right? And so meaning should it all be like integrated into one one clinic. And we talk about that sometimes with abortion services too. Like, should abortion services just be integrated into like everyday clinical care or are they specialized enough that they need to be siloed in a different clinical setting? And I think you have people on both sides of the fence in both cases, right? There are a lot of people who feel like, yeah, of course, like ultimately the goal is for us to build the like nirvana of healthcare, right that anybody of any gender or sexuality can walk into a clinic and feel confident that they are going to be treated with respect and with the most updated knowledge about standards of care and that just is not our reality and so there are a number of patients or you know activists or community members who say yeah, well, that's not my world. And I don't feel safe going into a regular clinic setting. So I really want to be in a clinic that focuses on LGBTQ healthcare or abortion services or disability medicine, just because that feels more comfortable for me. I think that that changes visibility in a specific way, right? Like if all of your queer and or disabled patients are going to one place, then you're probably not going to be in the waiting room with very many queer or disabled people. And I think that really changes your perspective of like who's in your community. So we, you know, we have a lot of really like still meaty discussions about what the best way to provide this care is.
1: That is so fascinating. So where do you see, in the kind of practice that you have, right? You have such a fun way of putting it. Cradle to grave. What was the other way? Uh,
0: womb to tomb. Womb to Sperm tomb. to worm. Sperm yeah. to worm. So fun fact, that's actually from West Side Story. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lyric from West Side Story.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Now I like that even more. So going back to our pride topic, like where does pride factor in the stuff that you're doing?
0: I think it factors in, in a lot of places. We have a lot of visual cues available to people who are coming into the clinic that we love and celebrate LGBTQI people. So we have pride flags up and signs and we have a non-discrimination statement and we have gender neutral bathrooms, right? So all of those things are signaling people that this space is meant to be welcome to them. And then, you know, I think... I what I hear from a lot of patients is that having a queer doctor like an out queer doctor makes a huge difference for them in terms of feeling safe going to the doctor and talking about relationships like I am not by any stretch of the imagination perfect 100% of the time but I think I may do better than most talking about like birth control right I don't assume that you need it. And I don't assume that you don't need it regardless. And sometimes those conversations are just exhausting, right? Like how many times can you tell somebody that you don't need a pregnancy test either because you only have sex with women or because you were assigned male at birth. So I feel like because our clinic has this long history of caring for LGBTQ people, we just have some workflow and some system and some kind of what do they say in like business models? They say like, oh, we have a shared mental model, right? <laughs> so We have like a shared mental model about who our patients are and what they may and may not need. And, you know, a lot of what I do in terms of trans healthcare is just like affirming and celebrating people and also being really flexible and understanding that people's identities can change over time you know, when I'm talking to folks about starting hormones, I kind of ask, you know, tell me a little bit about your gender journey and like how you think I can help you. And a lot of times because of that history that you were talking about with definitions of homosexuality and um, gender dysphoria, being in the psychiatric definition literature, a lot of times people feel like they have to jump through a lot of hoops or they... They actually, it's not that they feel that way. They actually have to jump through a lot of hoops to get what they need. And so oftentimes they'll say like, this is not about you proving you're trans enough for hormones because oftentimes people feel really pressured to do that. Like they have to give this narrative of their life that fits the picture that they they think that the clinician has in their brains about who deserves hormones and who needs huh. hormones, right? So sometimes people whether or not it's true, they feel like they have to create this narrative for the gatekeeper, right? The person who is standing between them and the care that they need about the classic narrative is, I knew ever since I was, you know, five years old, that there was something different about me. And I only wanted to play with Barbies, I never wanted to play with GI Joe, and I would always steal my mom's clothes or my sister's makeup. And, when I went through puberty, it was awful. And I was so miserable. Like they feel like they have to prove that they are trans enough for hormones. And actually that is not a requirement. (laughs) You don't have to prove that you're trans enough for hormones. All you have to do is like tell your clinician that listen, I'm trans or I'm non-binary. And I think that this medication is going to help me live more authentically and joyfully. And you shouldn't have to prove anything. Right. So I think that, you know, that's a lot of pride in my practice, right? is talking about who you are and that that's beautiful and you're not broken and I'm so excited that you are about to take this step to live authentically and also I'm also so excited for if you don't want to take any steps with medication, right? I'm here to say you're perfect the way that you are and if there's something I can do to help you feel better, we're going to do that. I think also there's something to be said for visibility, right? Like having queer folks in leadership roles or healthcare roles that allows younger queer people to envision themselves doing stuff like that.
1: Oh, that's great. There are statistics that are cited from like, I guess, the Trevor Project sort of survey data about trans kids who have an affirming adult in their lives and sort of the positive impact that makes. But you're saying more like directly about the physician-patient relationship?
0: Yeah. So there are all these like really interesting studies, even like things that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like surgery. So they looked at gender concordance. So like if you are a self-identified female patient and you have a self-identified female surgeon, you do better. Your surgical outcomes are better (laughs) and you die less frequently. Right. And so that's wild. I know. And we really see it with racial concordance, which is not terribly surprising right because there's just terrible institutionalized racism in the healthcare system right but it's it is so so fascinating and i feel um complicated about it right because mm-hmm. it makes it makes sense and uh, it makes me feel sad right? right that 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 is the reality of our healthcare system the other thing that is important to know is that we can do all of the cultural competency training that we want, and it actually doesn't make that much of a difference. What really makes the difference is having concordant positions, right? So I think what that speaks to is like, we need to be doing a better job of recruiting and retaining people from minoritized populations to become parts of the healthcare system, because that's really what's going to shift stuff.
1: That brings me back to thinking about what those Radical healthcare movements in the 1970s were after. They really wanted, you know, cis women wanted women focused healthcare. They wanted to go either care for one another or have midwives or have, you know, a woman centered approach. They did not want men telling them what their embodied experiences were and how they were going to be cared for. And I think too, with the LGBTQ healthcare movement, there was this real push to say, we are. We want to run the show for ourselves. We want to create a healthcare setting by us and for us. And I think that's really powerful.
0: Yeah. And I think we're starting to see, at least I will say in my own circles, I'm starting to see a lot more trans and non-binary healthcare providers as opposed to like queer or gay or lesbian healthcare providers. I feel like those numbers have been increasing slowly over time mainly because I think acceptance of gays and lesbians has been a little bit more rapid than the acceptance of trans and non-binary people. And so what I would love is to see way more actual trans and non-binary clinicians providing this care as opposed to a bunch of cis people providing the care. Yeah. Initially, when we were talking about should the, the title of this episode be why do we need pride? I was like, well, of course we need pride. We need, especially at this time where so much of our news feeds and our day-to-day life is full of negativity and oppression and hurtfulness, um, that it's so special to have a time where we can actually be joyful and celebrate our queerness, you know, there's something radical about joy and there's also something really radical about rest. And so from that perspective, I was like, yeah, of course we, of course we need pride. And then when I was on vacation, Rebecca, Kathleen and I were in the pool just like, you know, floating around, like being totally luxuriating in our time away. And off to the side, there was this group of women that were also very much enjoying their vacation and talking loudly. And one of them was talking about how some female relative of hers, like, was getting married to her same sex partner and they were engaged. And this person at the pool was on a rant about how in the Bible and I don't agree with it. And I'll come to your wedding, but I'm not going to stand up in your wedding. I'm not going to do anything to like participate in your wedding because I I don't believe in that. And that was also juxtaposed with like, I love her and she knows that I love her and I'm always here if she needs me, but that's wrong. And I was like, well, see, this is... (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly why we need pride, because that person, I'm sure, doesn't feel seen and really loved and supported. Oh, she also said she called to tell me that she was engaged. And I said, I love you. I'm always here for you. But I wouldn't say congratulations because I don't believe in that. I was like, oh, what a heartbreak, you know, like. I can just imagine being that young person and calling a relative and being like, I'm so excited to tell you that I got engaged and having to be like, okay, I love you and I'm always here for you and how that would feel so could potentially feel so deflating and sad. And so I think pride also is not, you know, it is all of these things. It is like a stew of remembering and honoring our, our elders who are still with us or who risked their lives or lost their lives for pride. It's about radical queer joy. It's about connecting with your community, right? Because right. if you are somebody who doesn't have a great supportive family of origin, those community connections are so important. And, you know, there was at least one study that I found that looked at community connectedness and LGBTQ people who reported more connectedness to their community were less likely to report suicidal behavior. But we have known for a long time that community is a lifesaver for LGBTQ people.
1: Absolutely. Well, I want to wish a big congratulations to that niece or daughter or cousin, young person person who got engaged and fell in love and is Going to have a beautiful wedding, I
0: hope It so. is going to be beautiful. Mazel tov. I hope you are surrounded by people who love you and see you.
1: Well, there we have it. Why we need pride. Happy pride, everybody. Woo! <laughs> Happy pride. Let's celebrate and protest and do all the things.
0: And make plans for the future.
1: Amen to that. All right. Uh, listeners, we're going to be taking a couple months off for our own rest and renewal process but we will be back in your feed this fall and can't wait to bring you some more really weird questions
0: you've been listening to this is probably a really weird question which is created hosted and produced by rebecca davis and ronnie Hyon. you can learn more
1: about us read our show notes and find links to resources on our website
0: www.reallyweirdquestion.com Follow us on Twitter at A Really Weird Pod. Rebecca tweets at History Davis and Ronnie at DrAwkwardMD. Send us your really weird, not really,
1: questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com.
0: Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music.
1: We are grateful for the financial support of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and
0: Memorial Foundation Trust. We additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening and keep on asking those questions.